0: You're listening to On The Verge, a podcast about solving the security risks of the 21st century, produced by the Council on Strategic Risks. Tune in for expert interviews about some of today's most pressing existential problems, including climate change, global pandemics, bioweapons, and nuclear proliferation. We'll discuss some of the major challenges and outline potential solutions for preventing worst-case scenarios. At the Council on Strategic Risks, we believe that we are on the verge of a better tomorrow. Hey everyone, my name is Natasha Bajma. I'm the director of the Converging Risks Lab. Um, one of the projects I've been working on over the past year has been to explore the impacts of emerging technologies. These include social media, deep fakes, machine learning, commercial satellites, uh, quantum computing, et etc exploring the impacts of these new technologies on nuclear decision-making and examining the new risks that they pose and how to mitigate them. And so as a result, I've been thinking a great deal about disinformation, um, AI, a lot of different technical topics. And so I'm really excited about this interview. If you are interested in learning all about the challenges related to data, and here I'm talking about authentication, provenance, disinformation, and learn about some of the challenges we face with um, deep fakes and AI and social media and how we might be able to counter some of those challenges with tools such as blockchain or other technical solutions, this is the interview for you. Hey everyone, welcome to this show. I'm here with Dr. David Mayer. He has more than three decades of experience in secure computing and currently serves as the Chief Technical Officer of InterTrust. Before joining his current company in 1999, Dr. Mayer was the Chief Scientist for at and t Secure Communication Systems, Head of the Secure Systems Research Department, and Security Architect for AT&T's Internet Services Platform. Dr. Mayer holds dozens of patents in secure computing. He's published papers in the fields of mathematics and computer science. He has also consulted with the National Science Foundation, National Security Agency, National Institute of Standards and Technology, and the Congressional Office of Technology Assessment. Dr. Mayer holds a PhD in mathematics from Lehigh University. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much, Natasha. This should be fun.
0: You are an expert in trust management systems. You have an extensive technical background in computing and information. But as I understand it, your field once crossed paths with the domain of nuclear weapons at an early point in your career. Could you tell us a bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, As a graduate student, I was exposed to a lot of great research going on at Bell Labs. And um, and this was back in in the 70s. And Bell Labs at that time was heavily involved in uh, defense research with a massive effort in anti-ballistic missile systems. And there was also a lot of debate about a nuclear test ban treaty. Um, And many people were opposed to such a treaty because basically of trust issues. And even those who were heavily in favor of a treaty recognized the need for robust monitoring for compliance. You know, this, uh, the term trust but verified it did not uh, originate with, uh, with Ronald Reagan, it, it, it goes way back. And the, the concept of a uh, monitoring system was proposed. And This was a network of many remote monitoring stations that use seismographic and radioactivity sensors distributed throughout the globe, and especially in the US and Soviet territories. And then there would be means for uh, broadcasting uh, the sensor data feeds. And all of the physical content of each se- seismo bunker, as each of these stations w- uh, was uh, called, was to be completely prescribed and inspected so everybody knew what was inside them. But there were many questions about how to deal with data spoofing nonetheless, uh, since you could interfere with signals uh, external to the bunkers. So ideally, you would want to know that the data received from these uh, 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 stations was genuine and ultimately you would want to make it difficult for an offender to uh, repudiate damning evidence. So uh, the research was about um, reserving the integrity and provenance of the data to provide for uh, effective non repudiation. Um, it was a really challenging problem. And I personally didn't you know, come up with uh, many useful solutions at the time. This is prior to things like digital signatures and such like, and such things. Uh, although I believe the NSA you know, is probably uh, aware of some of those uh, techniques. But decades later, people were still debating the the effectiveness of the solutions. I think in the late 90s, there was a lot of active um, uh, proposals going around for uh, a nuclear test ban treaty, but uh, we still don't have ratification of such a, such a treaty.
0: Yeah, that's true that we don't have entry into force because of the very specific requirements for that particular treaty requiring 44 countries specifically to have it entered into force, and that includes China, U.S., and North Korea, amongst others. Yeah. Um, But what's interesting is that the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty Organization currently exists and operates those stations, as you mentioned, around the world to detect seismic activity that is then seismic and radioactive activity that is related to nuclear testing. So it's fascinating that you were involved back in the early stages. And um, I think, you know, a lot of... uh, Next generation analysts think that um, these these issues of authentication um, are only relevant today, but they've always been been a problem, and it's really interesting that you were involved um, at an early time. It is often said that the currency of the modern world is data information, and both of these are incredibly important for national security. Uh, One of the issues we face as national security uh, professionals on a daily basis is the problem of disinformation. And this is getting even more complicated with the emergence of deep fakes or videos that are very difficult um, for us to assess with the naked eye. How do we get to a world in which we can trust that a digital image or video is authentic?
1: Well, uh, ideally we'd have an infrastructure whereby sensor data that comes from people's cameras, photos, uh, video, and then also chemical seismographic, agricultural data, data of all sorts actually could be efficiently tagged with attributes of origin. Uh, you know, the device that produced it, uh, its geolocation and the, the time of production of the, of the signals. We'd have a means of tracking subsequent data transformations as well and chain of handling and control of the data who subsequently touched it, so to speak. And then means for allowing data feeds to have that metadata verified. And uh, this is a tall order, of course, uh, given the amount of data that we're talking about out there, even just the data that needs to be verified for forensic purposes. But nowadays, all kinds of automated decision processes depend on data of known provenance. Uh, IoT automation, smart grids, what have you, will have, all need authenticated command control and data provenance. Uh, but imagine that, let's say, today in the Ukraine, um, news reporters uh, were armed with cameras and other sensors for chemicals, radiation, et cetera, that can provide all of the data collected with the attributes that we just talked about, proof of origin um, and time and metadata bound to the signal. And uh, with today's technology, this does not need to be expensive at scale. And in some situations, you're going to reasonably trust the sensors in a lot of agricultural applications. We have sensors for moisture, temperature, fertilization, light, et cetera. But uh, farmers and and others are more worried about downstream maintenance of integrity as well as the confidentiality of that kind of data. So it's a it's a, it's a it's a big problem. It's uh, wide ranging, and there's lots of uh, of applications for some of the solutions. So we need to. Also, be able to move the data from uh, sensor modules. Let's say you have a sensor module that can consist of a you know a secure on- enclave, as as Apple calls its uh, module for uh, encapsulating a lot of these functions. The um, uh, secure o- enclave would have uh, integrate GPS and uh, and a time base and uh, the actual uh, sensors themselves, uh, video sensors, uh, photographic sensors, etc. But then we have to move the data from those modules um, to environments where the data metadata integrity has to be maintained. Uh, there are solutions to this, uh, and um, you know we can talk a little bit about them. That people know about blockchains, for example, but perhaps associate them only with cryptocurrency and and NFTs nowadays, but a blockchain is just a data structure that allows one to prove that a statement or document existed at a specific time. Uh, its basic use uh, is uh, fairly, straightforward and the cryptography actually is not that complicated. But what's interesting is is that, what people again know about uh, blockchains is is that it's one of its big applications is cryptocurrency, which adds an awful lot of other stuff, other capabilities and complexity having to do with making sure that people can't double spend their cryptocurrency and stuff like that. But in the cryptocurrency case, uh, the immutable uh, statements recorded on the blockchain are transactions, typically payment transactions. But another way of using blockchains is where part of the statement you store can name the authority that attests to the statement. So we might have a very simple statement that said that that, uh, uh, Natasha uh, graduated from uh, a certain college and that's a statement and you could have uh, some authority, perhaps the university or whatever Uh, that made that statement make the assertion and that assertion uh, metadata who made that statement can be bound to the actual content and then stored on a blockchain. And we can use assertion blockchains whereby authoritative assertions about the data can be then verified. And we call it, at InterTrust, we call such an environment a, a title which stands for Trusted Immutable Distributed Assertion Ledger. Uh, It's a blockchain that timestamps and securely tags assertions. These are different from public blockchains you hear about. They're simpler for one thing, uh, much, much more efficient. And uh, verifying the assertions in the title is also very quick. Um, But most importantly, a, a title only stores information that has been vetted by authorities that themselves have been vetted as experts in the assertions about a specific topic and, and knowledge domain. That's why we call it trusted. Uh, people are gonna rely on those authorities as opposed to the trustless moniker of public uh, blockchains. And uh, each title has specialized policies designed for the kind of assertions of fact that it stores. We imagine a global network of the thousands of much simpler specialized titles that can provide authenticated data to one another. So, um, this technology exists in a research environment, but it needs to become part of our normal processing of data and that's the the, the big challenge. We can think think of terms of uh, an authoritative and authenticated web, if you want, um, that grows over time as the market for data with these attributes uh, grows. Um, that's more or less the, the outline of the, the solution, but it's even a taller order, like I said, because a lot of people have to cooperate in order to make this happen.
0: So, yeah, I mean, the, the scale is an issue. You say the technology exists. Um, what is the primary obstacle? Is it really um, government um, not understanding how to implement something like this or just too many players that would have to all cooperate together?
1: I think it's uh, it's too many players. Uh, we, an uh, interest, implemented uh, some aspects of, of this. We, we didn't use blockchain technology, uh, but I'm actually a big fan of using it for this kind of application. Um, but um, we um, provided means whereby uh, the content providers, you know content video and and movie studios could uh, uh, provide their content to devices that, that respected the use of the content. In other words, enforced digital rights management capabilities. And that involved uh, a lot of video services cooperating with a lot of different uh, device providers. All the TV providers, for example, all of the the uh, set top box providers, and you know there, there are dozens of these. And and um, you know we put together an organization that uh, allowed for that cooperation, so that you know anybody in let's say. Uh, Japan, who wanted to uh, watch a a, a recent movie, could get access to that because the service provider knew how to provide uh, trusted capabilities, similar to what I just described, uh, in cooperation with their set-top box or their TV, and we've done that in, in a number of other countries as well. Um, but it was a big problem of coordination, which was which probably the bigger than the actual technology production uh, to do it.
0: One more follow-up question here. So I'm thinking about the use case to social media. I'm thinking about Twitter and Facebook and the way that I understand it, they, they use algorithms to help detect um, fake news or misinformation at the moment. Mm-hmm. Would this be something that a private company like Twitter and or Facebook could take up? And if why haven't they thought about this yet?
1: Um, I think they they, they could uh, take it up. Um, we've done a, a demonstration project at InterTrust where, where um, we could uh, um, do this for, for example, for YouTube videos, people who, for example, could download a YouTube video, muckle around with it, make somebody look ridiculous or whatever. You've probably seen some of those already. Uh, and then re-upload it and um, we could show that, for example, if the original was pre-processed, uh, you could um, uh, uh, detect uh, using a, a standard browser with just a, a minor extension. You could build it into any browser. You could detect uh, mucking around with either the content or the metadata uh, and, and inform the user. Uh, and it was actually a pretty scalable system to do it using the, the, the title applications that I, that, that I described. Um, but I think that the, the will has to, to be there, it has to be a market for some of this. And I think some of the, I think that this is the kind of technology that perhaps wants to start small, perhaps people who uh, want to use um, the technology for say forensic data or news organizations or whatever would be the first users of this uh, because the advantages of being able to, to authenticate uh, and verify um, the, 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 the source of data are, are, are pretty big. We've talked about this to insurance companies, for example, uh, and they're, they're quite interested in it, but they're not the, the movers here.
0: Well, this is really fascinating. I think you kind of also talked about another group of stakeholders, the browsers themselves. So the Safari, the Chrome um, could also potentially be stakeholders that might see utility here.
1: That's right, yeah.
0: All right, Uh, moving on to AI. So governments around the world are racing to build AI enabled systems with defense and national security applications. I've mentioned in a piece I wrote um, the point of AI is the advantage of speed, but that's also a problem because you have governments who are rushing to build AI algorithms. They uh, rely upon defense contractors, private sector, third party vendors, and oftentimes also data sets from external sources. Could you explain some of the challenges of data sets for use in machine learning?
1: Sure, Um, it's it's actually pretty fundamental. You can think of an AI model as a combination of, what they call neural net code, which I won't get into. And it's training data set, the the, the data that's used effectively to educate the, uh, the, the artificial intelligence system. Um, and so that data set gives the AI its personality, so to speak. So it's important to know the provenance of the data set and to maintain its uh, its uh, integrity. And bias has always been a problem in AI. Um, you can also think in terms of, you know, you're trying to to, to imagine um, an AI uh, uh, having um uh, operating in a specific environment with a specific class of uh, of stimuli, and uh, it's a somewhat similar to the biases you get with polling. For example, uh, you have to select a, an unbiased and uh, 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 sample, and that's very very challenging. As we know, we've seen uh, that it, especially recently, it, uh, pollsters just haven't been able to do that. So you have a similar problem in AI. You you want an unbiased uh, data set, and Finding one is a is a process issue, and it's an instance of also maintaining chain of uh, handling and control. The bias could be maliciously disrupted, for example, by by intruders. Um, but some AI undergoes continuous training too, um, so the the AI algorithm, so to speak, is implemented in something that's out. In the field, and uh, it's exposed to um, you know c- uh, continuous training and sometimes what you call unsupervised training. Uh, so you must also know what that where your AI is hanging out, so to speak, and, and truly understand it's. Uh, uh, operational environment and for data sets in a defense context, intentional bias is a special threat. The opponent can effectively jam AI with data noise or manipulate the system with carefully designed malicious signals. Uh, forcing it to make bad decisions. Um, so a lot of AI systems, a good example is a, a, an AI system that maintains the stability of some of these very, very complex um, jet aircraft that uh, that people operate. As you say, they, the AI is there because it can make decisions to stabilize the aircraft much, much faster. They make thousands of decisions a second, uh, whereby a, a pilot couldn't possibly do that. Um, so these systems are, are generally closed, but a lot of other systems aren't. They're, like I say, open to all kinds of, uh, of stimuli. And you do need to have that, what I call a, a chain of handling and control of the training systems, that uh, the training data that, that that trains these systems. And that's a commercial context where a lot of the AI is created is uh, not always the discipline, and you know I've seen where an opponent can be make imperceptible changes in a signal in full an AI system, so that you know, for example, in uh, let's say uh, automated uh, 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 car driving, you have um, uh, a system where a stop sign can become can look like a, a speed limit sign. Uh, just by mucking with the uh, with the video, that or actually with the sign itself, the physical sign itself. Uh, so there are many ways to attack an AI system to make the AI classify It's what it's doing classify optical data completely inappropriately. And um, it, it seems as if the AI system is dumb, but we need to realize that that these artificial intelligence systems really aren't processing and thinking about what they're seeing in the same way that the human does it's uh it, it truly is artificial
0: that's fascinating this is one of the things that i think scares me most about ai because it is on one hand so powerful but as you say it's it's vulnerable to um sabotage and interference in ways that are not perceptible to to humans necessarily and so being able to secure those systems would be incredibly important and i'm also thinking about how Um, you know, the, the government may also rely upon data sources that are not generated by the government that are generated by third-party actors I'm thinking about in the health sector in particular, when we talk about health data, um, all being integrated into providing some sort of early warning system for pandemics. And that's where, you know, the government might have to borrow data from other, other sources, but it, it all gets very problematic. So in some of your talks online, you've mentioned to err is human, but to really screw things up, you need a computer. I remember hearing about this in the 1980s already, but you go on to say that, uh, talk about a worst case scenario involving the emergence of scalable, trustless, distributed system. And I'm an avid consumer of doom and gloom, so this immediately intrigued me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> could you explain what you mean by this? Are we there yet? And how can we please avoid this terrible thing that you're talking about?
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so uh, what I'm really worried about is a world whereby we rely so much on computer code that's not effectively designed to be reliable. Everybody who writes code wants it to be reliable, but it it it's a process. <laughs> And I don't think that we have the processes nowadays for the kind of systems that people are talking about. Now I'll get into what I mean. Um, So you'll hear there's a a lot of uh, noise about uh, trustless systems. That's what some of these blockchains are about uh, Bitcoin. And uh, the big advantage of Bitcoin is that it uh, uh, doesn't rely on, you don't have to trust a bank. Uh, as an example, or any third party. Um, I, I think that that property is somewhat oversold, uh, especially if you call it trustless, and I'll get into that. Um, it, it's possible to have a scalable distributed secure system, you know, as, you know, like Bitcoin, I think proves that. And there are other systems whereby the ambition is, is Far greater that you know that you have um, the concept of smart contracts, which I'll also talk about in, this in a second. Um, but this idea of the, these systems are trustless uh, is just wrong because. It, Means that you don't rely on anything, uh, that no one is accountable, and that the concept of authority or assurance about facts external to the system is, you know, that's at, at best ambiguous. And a lot of these systems, for example, the NFT systems for uh, that that run on Ethereum and all all of the uh, sort of uh, um, distributed uh, financial. Uh, capabilities that you're starting to hear about, um, which is code running on uh, a blockchain for which no one is accountable is, uh, is a, a, a big challenge. And I won't get into a lot of the technical things, uh, but with these public blockchains, when things go wrong, And they do, there is no accountability. Multi-million dollar heists happen and it's interesting to see that this point one just hopes the money is returned. Uh, There was a $326 million theft from uh, a blockchain transaction bridge called Wormhole uh, in February. And it was the result of a smart contracts language flaw. And The vision of the crypto advocates is that we can run the world using smart contracts, uh, which as they say are neither smart or our contracts. But these are at the heart of the global uh, trustless distributed systems. and, uh, again, explaining technically and accurately what a smart contracts are is, uh, is going to be a little challenging here, but you can think of them as self-executing agreements that once created are effectively unchangeable and unstoppable. Um, they, the code of a smart contract is uh, written onto an immutable blockchain, which is you know, blockchains are, you know, uh, are, have this property called immutability. They, you write to them and then you can't unwrite uh, uh, to them. You could subsequently, for example, have a statement later on that says, oh, that thing I wrote, you know, last week is no longer valid. I don't stand behind it. But that original statement is always there. In the case of of um, smart contracts, you have a similar kind of uh, situation. Um, and, um, but un- unless you very, very specifically arrange for it, um, you know, code could run infinitely. Um, so, you um, In a program language, um, you have uh, and the kind of program language that you use for these blockchains uh, basically allows for conditions such as if A happens, you know, something happens, uh, like a person just gives an approval, then you execute uh, a subprogram. Um, and they often have the cryptocurrency involved in these kinds of contracts. Uh, they're locked up in the contract itself when it's first deployed. So you're kind of prepaying. Um, so um, if you implement a mechanism uh, such as uh, uh, um, a killing a uh, contract that's going awry, Uh, that locked up currency just disappears in in, in many cases. Um, And there are other reasons why people, you know, lose uh, cryptocurrency, but this is a new one. Um, So there are a number of technical issues to try to deal with this immutability problem. and um, like we all know, we, we know we're constantly updating our computers because we're fixing bugs all the time. So everybody should intuitively be aware of the fact that uh, there are bugs in code and there always will be. Uh, but what do you do about that in, uh, in a blockchain? Um, so people are coming up with um, solutions for bugs in the blockchain code um, and, uh, And it's not just a bug, perhaps, when a side effect of the contract unpleasantly surprises a party. In other words, they didn't actually understand it. What do you do? Um, And as we talked about earlier, I mean, some of these attacks on, um, uh, or heists, you could call them, of of, uh, blockchain uh, currency, are people are just saying, I'm just using the code the way it was written. (laughs) Uh, And, and, and if there's no way of changing that code, then what do you do? Um, so people are proposing new approaches to this, but they just introduce new uh, dangers. For example, there's something called contract proxies. Uh, they're intended to get around the immutability problem. Uh, so you have one program uh, calls a proxy program where the call can be routed to a new piece of code. So this allows you in the new piece of code to update the program. Uh, Okay, but all parties get notified that that's the case. Um, And how do you know that you're being routed to a proxy code? Um, And uh, so the contract becomes less transparent. The contract is open-ended. It's really not all written in some sense. um, And um, when the new code does something unexpected, Who's really accountable for that? Um, so uh, that's the problem actually in a trustless system. There is no accountability. Who's uh, responsible for these kinds of things? Uh, and then there's another example is the, the kill switch has been proposed. You know, in other words, you know, if you got a, a, a payment program that's running in an infinite loop, um, the the, there's a feeling that, okay, we've got to have something that can kill these kinds of things. And article 30 of the EU's proposed data act um, uh, actually requires that smart contracts must have a capability to terminate uh, any, you know, uh, continued execution of transactions to avoid um, future accidental transactions, in effect, to deal with this sort of infinite recursion problem. But this introduces new issues such as when can a contract be terminated? By who? Under what circumstances? And what happens to the currency that gets stranded? Uh, and how is all this done in a trustless way? And then finally, there's the, the Oracle problem, which is uh, the fact that public blockchains can only verify conditions based on data that is already on the, the, the chain. In other words, the miners that you hear about, one of the, the tasks that they have to execute is to, to verify uh, you know, previous transactions. So that you have, they can verify that you have enough money to pay for this current transaction. And that's, and they can do that and they could do it fairly efficiently because all of those previous transactions are on, on the, the, the blockchain. But with these smart contracts, you can reference all kinds of data that is not on the chain and the miners don't verify that. Um, so um, for example, betting contracts, they can refer to let's say the ESPN sports scores feeds or a parametric crop insurance can uh, might refer to the US weather service data. But then that begs the question of how are these references secured? Uh, in theory, just about any external data can be referenced. How do we assure the accuracy of that data who is responsible, and what happens when things go wrong, uh, or where there is an attack by nefarious agents on the uh, integrity of these data feeds? And uh, also, I'll just ask, throw in another question: Why do we have to do this anyway? <laughs> but, uh, uh, but in any case, uh, people are working on this, and uh, but right now, I think it's um, uh, a. Uh, uh, more of a, a Sisyphus kind of situation. Yeah, you know, go in this direction of uh, global trustless distributed systems will need to develop a calculus for trust. You know, we're uh, so-called trustless blockchains are evolving into things that clearly are not trustless. They rely on code, they rely on protocols which can and do have failures. And um, when such a trustless system is scalable which was one of the uh, things I was talking about, fortunately, or I guess, unfortunately for some people, things like Bitcoin and Ethereum are not really scalable. Um, Ethereum might be on the verge of being scalable in the sense that it can execute hundreds or thousands of transactions a second. Uh, right now it's maybe tens at best, but when they become more powerful, um, then um, that's going to be a, a much bigger problem.
0: This might be one situation where ignorance is bliss. Uh, it was all very fascinating. I'm a little concerned. Um, I, I feel like computers are our new overlords um, and, and code is, is the mechanism by which we will all be bound into a prison, but I am probably exaggerating. Um, I, I have novels going through my head right now. This is the danger of telling these things to a fiction author. So. Let's um, close with um, a discussion on a specific application. Over the past several months, we've been watching a crisis unfold in real time with Russia's invasion of Ukraine against the backdrop of implied nuclear threats. Every day, social media feeds are flooded with claims about events on the ground from news agencies, governments, regular citizens. Some of these are backed up by images and videos that look authentic. at CSR, I'm working on a project that examines the risks that these types of technologies pose for nuclear decision making. So, if you can imagine, we actually enter a nuclear crisis and all of this information is being bantered about. I can't help worrying about the potential for nuclear escalation in this kind of daily onslaught of information that's been unverified. And I'm just thinking, in the midst of a nuclear crisis, there might not be enough time to authenticate data. Um, we've talked. We t- we've touched about on a lot of these issues. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could close by by giving us hopefully some reassurance. Are there tools available to quickly authenticate and demarcate valid information online? Yeah.
1: Well, the answer is, is actually pretty clearly no, um, but there could be. Uh, and uh, like I said, people are working at it. Um, and it brings us back to the discussion we had about the comprehensive uh, test ban treaty. Um, in the 1990s, uh, Sandia uh, Labs recommended a system for providing the provenance and non-repudiation and all of the, the properties we would hope to have. Um, but a lot of effort went into it and it's, it's, it's costly. Um, on the other hand, uh, as you pointed out, the, um, uh, the monitoring systems, a lot of them, I think are, are there are a couple of hundred uh, systems out there, and they're they're, they're actually working, um, but it's very specialized. Um, so, uh, and we can use the the simple assertion-oriented blockchains that I talked about earlier to add, again add the desired properties to, to data stored online at relatively low cost. Um, that's part of our research: is can you do this part in in a scalable way? Bind metadata about. You know, data about data to actual signals, and providing online means for data and metadata verification, so you can find out that something uh, is is a fake, uh, and without having to you know scrutinize the uh, signal with the, looking for minor changes. Uh, uh, that's much that takes much too much time so the the problem is making all of this systematic and automatic and we discussed that a little bit the, the, ranging for authorities on different topics and different lo- knowledge domains an example being healthcare for example to provide appropriate policies for making assertions about the, the data on, on a blockchain. you know I've seen a lot of proposals for uh, putting medical records on blockchains uh, for example and uh, it's these things don't necessarily solve all the problems that, that that need to be solved and, and one of the problems is is is, is the, the authoritative uh, assertions uh including the assertions that people uh have that say oh you can look at my my data or you can use my data for research or or whatever. These, People were, want this kind of thing. I mean, the the world. Uh, I mean, I'm uh, a cancer survivor, a stage four cancer survivor, and you know, I read a lot, an awful lot of research about uh, you know experiments on people and about experiments that uh, and discoveries that have been made in of the millions of people who have gotten cancer. We're not able to yet to use the data that could help. Um, people uh, survive. And we could find out, well, which, you know, what are the aspects of people who have survived uh, cancer and, and, and what are, the, uh, what are the, the, the paths that we could take uh, and we could, uh, for, you know, for cures. And we're not mining that data. And it's because of a lot of the issues that we've talked about, um, but more because of privacy than anything else. Uh, if we had better data solutions, more researchers would have access to more of, the, of this and we'd have, uh, uh, you know, a better world, as they say. So, you know, we're, we're hoping that that will eventually be able to uh, to um, uh, uh, solve these problems. Um, but, you know, it's it's kind of like. Um, uh, the world that we're in now—that there there isn't uh, a lot of faith, uh, whether it's in government or or anybody else—to um, effectively solve these problems. I mean, the the, the healthcare record issue was—you know—that th- was taken up by Google, it was taken up by Amazon, it was taken up by all of the bit, you know the big players. Uh, and it's very, very daunting. Uh, and it's not clear uh, that there's going to be an easy solution that uh, everybody is going to share. Um, the government, for example, is not no longer in a position or, and no one longer has the, the stomach for any sort of big science anymore. And that's a problem. And I, I think you've observed that yourself. It's, uh, it, and in some ways, it's a, it's a shame. And Other people might think, well, it's it's probably better. Um, But in any case, as I said before, we designed a system that could authenticate videos uploaded to YouTube uh, and get the metadata. Uh, And um, I I think there are some promising applications here, um, but what I cannot say is that people are rushing to deploy systems like these. Uh, And there's probably also worth mentioning the special context of the question that you put, which is the war. uh, In a more normal state of affairs, security is at least somewhat assured by hopefully appropriate combination of laws, law enforcement and technology. the security of our homes, for example, we don't have perfect security, locks and sensors don't provide us with much protection unless it's buttressed with law enforcement and statute. Uh, anybody can get into my home, frankly, you know, just by, you know, with, with a gun, you know, shoot the lock off <laughs> and uh, you can use a silencer if you want. It's pretty straightforward. On the other hand, there would be plenty of evidence that that was done. And there's laws and law enforcement. But in a time of war, the weight is almost entirely on technology. You can't no longer rely on, at least in, in this day and age, as, the, the tragedy of, of Ukraine is demonstrating you can't uh, uh, rely on any kind of enforcement.
0: Yeah, those are really great points. That's why we need to get these systems in place today before we have a crisis. Um, during a crisis, um, it's, it's really difficult uh, to address these issues. This has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Oh, thank you, it's been uh, very enjoyable.
0: Thank you for listening to On the Verge. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review. For more information on the work of the Council on Strategic Risks, please visit us at councilonstrategicrisks.org or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram or LinkedIn.